This call may be recorded or transcribed. Testing, one, two, three. Hello, can you hear me? I can me? hear you. I can hear you, yeah. Hey, thank you. Oh, sorry, Dave's a little getting away from me, but. And. Uh, so, Nisha's there? Is Ernest there? Hello? Did I just lose everybody? I still hear Testing you. One, I don't think Ernest is with us. Okay. I'll take a minute. Okay. Huh. So, did you see my response to uh, my little iMessage chat about hypertranscendental beings? <laughs> yeah. I think you've exceeded the information carrying capacity of iMessage with that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wasn't really sure what to do with that. Do you remember having that discussion about uh, if God is some sort of transcendent hyperdimensional being with a whole different system of reference than we do, uh, how can we say he is? Oh yeah, very vaguely. It's it's definitely the kind of discussion. I remember I'm even having. Uh, and my yeah. audio keeps. Like most of them, the first month we met. Interesting. Uh, what's funny is that it's actually relevant. Hi. Hello, Ernest. Thank you for joining us. Um, What's funny that Anisha and I were having a side conversation about the nature of God, or maybe one-sided, I don't know. But one of the things that came up was this question of, uh, like in many traditions, God is sort of the ultimate everything uh, and transcendent. But if that's true, then how could it relate to individuals such as us? And what's interesting, it's very similar to the problem we have in our autocracy in that at one level, we want everyone to be connected in a shared culture where we can learn from each other and be held accountable to living up to our promises. On the other hand, we also want to create room for individuality and personalization and diversity. And this tension between individuality and commonality, uh, sometimes called the hard problem of uh, Western civilization, the one versus the many. And what's interesting is that it seems to be this is a, a hot topic in the data management space under the term the data mesh. Have you heard this term, Anish? Yes. Do you have an understanding of what it means? I read Fowler's article, and I think Martin Fowler, data architect, has written quite a bit about this. I wouldn't improvise a data mesh definition off the top of my head. Sure, yes, I have a vague idea of what, of what a data mesh is. Okay, anyway, the reason I mentioned it is because I think I posted it, I posted it on the sleep channel, is that one of the guys from BBC said, well, there's a formal definition that Martin Fowler has, and I'm not sure I understand or agree with that, but a emergent definition that people have been using to talk about it is the idea that you have a um, some sort of centralized data platform where individual decentralized teams can define their own data. And that seems to be at least one way that this term is gaining currency, independent of the specific technical architecture that Martin defined. Um, and again, whether or not we want to use that term or not, 
uh, I think that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? The idea that the common data substrate is the thing that we're we're agreeing to cooperate on, and uh, but then we can use that to implement sort of whatever analysis we want, as long as we're honest about it. Is that making sense? Uh, stepping in and out, sorry. Is that making sense yeah, or resonating with any of you? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's reasonable. I, I wasn't sure. I, I heard what the centrifugal force was. Uh, excuse me. I, yeah, I heard what the centrifugal force was, which was that uh, we want individuals and groups to be autonomous. Uh, it's not clear to me what the centripetal force is. Is it that these groups need to communicate towards shared ends, that they can achieve more if they band together? That I mean, that is, I'll just bring up, there's kind of a, a reverse tragedy that commons and data, which I see a lot, and I'll, I'll take a very specific example. And it is uh, research organizations hoard their data because they believe that whether they can find it or not, there's some kind of edge in the data set. Uh, however, their data would be much more valuable if they just agreed to pool it with other hospitals, with other research organizations, and you kind of get this data set standoff. So again, my, my question is, if it's about the individual versus the many, there, there are, you know, the, the force of autonomy and maybe agility favor the individual, but then what are, what are the forces that kind of tend to relegate human beings towards cooperation? Or datocracy, right. datacrats? Yeah, so I, um, I think there is two different dimensions. We talked about this at the end last time, or maybe on the chat, is that there's the pragmatic sense of, well, I think this will work out better for me. And then there's the sort of idealistic sense of, well, it just seems self-evident to me that this is the kind of world I want to live in, right? The, oh. the true believers versus the pragmatists. And for some of us, it just feels like, you know, I like the idea of living in a world where our most important data is all public and shared. That just seems like a vastly better world to live in, even if it causes some minor differences. Uh, I don't expect everyone to share that viewpoint, but I think there might be a critical mass like that, and this is a very good definition of what that shared platform is. Now, what, what do you mean by me? Do you mean what's me in this? Is, is me the owner of the data, the individual? Or the uh, corporate of the, let's say, well, yeah, let's say uh, company. So as an individual, I, and this is what I pursue and what I believe in, my medical data is mine. And if I go, if I jump between hospitals, my data shouldn't jump between hospitals or whatever. These two hospitals gain, I provide the hospital access to my data. So that I don't, if I go to a new hospital, I don't have to transfer all those records and, and do all that, whatever G, uh, transactions just to, you know, fax machines or or, e or mail or, or, you know, paper records. I don't have to carry all that just to transfer my data from hospital to hospital. Uh, it is my belief that it is mine. Therefore, I should have control of whatever storage mechanism infrastructure my data is, is in, so that I can grant access. We have a lot of background noise, Ernie. I don't, like uh, yeah. someone cleaning your garage or cleaning a dishwasher. I don't know. 
for it's yeah. me making dinner, so I'll try to mute uh, while I'm doing that. Uh, okay. Keep talking. Yeah. So, so do you hear Ernest? The, Ernie, we were uh, you and I talked about that like a few weeks ago. That uh, the uh, in, the individual is the owner of the data. Therefore, uh, if it's data about the individual, it should be managed by the individual, as in the individual should grant others, including hospitals and doctors, access to that individual's data. And uh, then, you know, we have uh, 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 protocols that enrich that data with context and all that, which is also what we talked about. It's just not uh, a measurement. You know, you don't have just uh, blood pressure measurements or whatever. It has context in the uh, when it comes to, okay, we captured this because we were searching, um, researching why this individual presents the symptoms. Therefore, we did this uh, measurement and it, it is all packaged in, in uh, silos, not silos, but uh, context groups, you know, that say doctor whatever requested these um, tests because the doctor believe whatever. So all that is in there, very rich, so that any user of that data, be a doctor, being a x-ray person, radiologist, uh, uh, cancer doctor, whatever, so that they can get that and interpret it, you know, just like uh, any other medical data. But that the storage uh, infrastructure is controlled by the individual. So I go to the hospital. You know, even if I can't uh, talk, whatever, they can see my phone and they can access, you know, some, uh, I can provide others also uh, a proxy so that I can uh, grant access to the hospital of my own data. So that, uh, you know, or, you know, it's an emergency, so you, they treat me and then eventually they will merge those two uh, data sets. So that it's, all, it's always the, the data is in control of the individual. And I can say, yeah, I use my data. You have uh, six months or whatever. You said if I don't, you know, use your services, then you have to whatever copies or whatever of that data that you have used, you have to delete. Just like you know, GDPR and the California one, uh, you have access to the data on a uh, temporary basis until either I renew it or 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 if I don't renew it, therefore you have to automatically uh, delete it unless you have to keep copies for whatever, audit, and, and all those things. But automatically, data is always under the control of the data owner. Now, when it comes to businesses, you say me, so a uh, university, uh, then uh, that's kind of more, you know, mm, uh, uh, gray. Like, so if a university is doing research, and I'm a volunteer, now is that medical data mine or the university's? I don't know. Maybe the university's in that case, or maybe it's both. Um, but, you know, it shouldn't be just uh, that university is there to do whatever they want, unless it's uh, anonymized, maybe. So uh, that's other aspects of this. But uh, to me, the individual should feel control over uh, uh, zero data. I think that online advertising has already blurred this line. Uh, let me give you an example. So we accept free infrastructure and Google being an example, Facebook being another example, in ex free infrastructure and services on top of that infrastructure in exchange for surrendering our data. 
And mm -hmm. I guess there's there's two two kind of points that I want to make. So, so the first is I don't well, I'll reveal my bias as a radical individualist. So I definitely align spiritually with the idea of individuals owning their data. I don't think in practice that it's actually that simple at all. And let's just take an example here. So I guess the federal government, to some extent, although they still take insurance information, is funding the vaccine rollout. Uh, does that mean that individuals should have the right to privacy for their vaccination data, like adverse events? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's all obvious. And there's two issues. So let me bring up some practical issues. So the first is, it's not at all clear that the individuals ever even have the infrastructure, especially as data get larger, to store, quote unquote, their own data. That's the first problem. The second thing is, I, I place extraordinarily little faith in temporary copies of data. First of all, because copies are so cheap, right? And especially when the data are seen in the clear, they can be copied and extracted. And second, because the a track record of both private and public organizations that keeping private data private is basically is terrible. So uh, I guess what I'd like to attack here, because I think it's a hard and juicy problem, is number one, you know, what does data ownership really mean, especially when other people provide the infrastructure, provide the services for storing and collecting that data? And is there really such a thing as a revocable copy? which, you know, GDPR has this very awkward certificate of destruction. Like, what does that mean for a digital object? But you can, you, GDPR offers the right to erasure and you can say, hey, I want you to get rid of all the data concerning me. And the company has to deliver a certificate of destruction to you. What does that even mean? All right, let me yeah. dive in here before I have to go dark. Let me, if I can just say like two things, because this is interesting, because this actually touches on the last two points of my manifesto that we didn't uh, discuss in detail last time, which is that <coughs> I'm starting from the perspective that, you know, just not saying this is everything I believe, but just for the purpose of this discussion, what I care most about is the ability to make effective decisions. And that, you know, the ecosystem that makes the best decisions will outcompete those that do not. But I'm just taking that as the framing. And from that perspective, uh, to me, the, 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 to your point, the, less quite, the, the thing I'm less interested in is data ownership as in management of the data platform. Because if you have a transparently managed platform that has some communal ownership, the whole idea of a communal data platform, then at least you're making rational, honest decisions about how the data is being used. And uh, my second point was that, you know, so my first point is like the core architecture has to be something that we have shared ownership of. Uh, what exactly that means, I don't know, but it's got to be something that's sort of a socialized resource that we agree to share and that no for-profit or uh, opaque organization is, is uh, managing in a way that we don't control, which is why I think the core architecture needs to be open source, open standards, open interfaces like that. And the second point is that vendors, maybe service providers, need to be relegated to well-defined components or innovative endpoints, so they can't constrain the architecture. And my, my sort of perspective on this is that I don't know the right way to balance all these things, but I'm saying if we can get the architecture right and the incentives right, then at least we have a chance of making rational trade-offs. Uh, the, the, the last phrase I introduced at the, uh, in the, the link I just said is this idea of rational trust. It's like, okay, I want to be able to say, do I want to participate in this platform? If I do, 
at least I have some idea of what I'm giving up and what I'm getting because the people running it have the same incentives I do, as opposed to it being some amorphous blob. Um, so that's the hypothesis I'm working from, and now I will shut up and make noise in my kitchen. Well, so you brought up, you brought up a few. Go, go ahead, Ernest. Okay, so to uh, I want to provide a good example where you know we have uh, the blockchain, where in blockchain slash cryptocurrency, where I have um, a set of coins, right? I have uh, Coinbase. I have some of that in there, uh, and I have some of those in or some other. Uh, set of them in private uh, wallets, right? So I have, in the latter case, I have total control over uh, who can access that. You know, I have my key, and only the people that I provide, if I say, hey, send me some money, I'll, I'll provide them some uh, address to my wallet so they can deposit stuff in there. Um, when it comes to Coinbase, they have control of all those keys, to uh, help me uh, manage um, my uh, crypto assets, right? They charge me uh, a lot for, for that, very expensive uh, fees, but it makes it easy for me to, you know, switch from um, ADA to BTC and, and, you know, and, and, you know, back and forth or other currencies, right? I can just switch instead of having to jump from the supported pair. Sometimes, there's not a specific uh, currency pair that you can use to switch from currency, so you have to go to a third one. But uh, I have, because I kind of know what's going on, I can manage my wallet uh, currency so that if I'm afraid of the power of the uh, uh, exchange Coinbase, I say, ah, I, I don't know, I, I don't trust them with whatever. So I keep certain amount of currency with them, but then at some point I transfer other coins to the, the private wallet so that I know that if Coinbase falls or whatever, I have uh, these other coins more safe. But then I have the risk of if I lose that hardware wallet or, you know, uh, a wallet that's more controlled uh, by me, if I lose the keys, if I lose the wallet, I'm done, you know, that, that money is gone. So you have to, you know, uh, analyze what the situation is and, and make your choices like Ernie says, you know, the decisions. Uh, so in the case of in the patient and the hospitals, uh, we would put you something similar to uh, crypto, uh, the crypto infrastructure, but with a third, with a middle-level middle key management situation where I can say, um, hey, key agent controller or whatever, I provide access to this other entity to my data, which is stored in some, you know, something similar to cryptocurrencies. Some people, like Ernie was talking about, some service providers provide storage and hardware in return of in return from uh, fees for accessing or providing access to that. So, and, and all this is open, open source and, and open standards. And you know, if if I am an owner of data. You know, I'm a more sophisticated owner of data, for example. I can buy a box, which is like, you know, and this is a computer with storage in there, and I can say, this is my contribution to the, to the network. I just plug it in, and it does what it does. It uh, uh, 
verified transactions, stores data. And it's not just my data, it's anybody's data, right? That data goes to where you are. Like following the IPFS model, you know, if, you, if I'm in, uh, uh, here in San Jose uh, and the system knows that I'm here, then you would transfer some copies or most copies of the, my data to computers, servers in here, so that it can be accessed more uh, quickly. But if my data is distributed toward, you know, in the mesh, in the network, and there's no, hey, this server or that server, no, it's just in the network. It's, it's in there and it's accessible to you and to whoever you provide access to, you know, all the time. The first access might be slow, but the second access is going to be fast because the data is duplicated, but then the network manages uh, all that deduplication and, or duplication, whatever. Uh, so we have a managed system of data that it intelligently moves data around and also manages the access to that. Uh, and, you know, whoever processes data, whoever is the consumer of that, has to um, uh, go by contracts, you know, we, we can talk about smart contracts that control the access of that data. So you're using it now, okay, great. We're going to by these rules that you, your access permit is, is, is uh, uh, not permanent and it expires unless the owner extends that access or the order or another or the contract is um, specific you know life a life uh, life insurance so that contract lasts until something happens the individual dies or the uh, uh, period expires right so with clear um, procedures and, and contracts and you know that we can create something that is open source open everything that everybody can see how it works because it's mostly uh, operated by contracts that people can read and computers can process. And that is very important that an individual with uh, some level of education can read whatever the system is doing for that individual. Uh, and, you know, like we have contracts all over the place. You, you sign, you know, like life insurance contracts, like you go to a service center for your car, that's a contract. Hey, you, I give you my car. You do your thing, you fix it or you or you don't fix it, depending on how much it costs, and I tell you whether you can go ahead and fix it or not. That's a contract right there, and we can just computerize with that or, and uh, make it so that everybody is, uh, is accountable for their actions when it comes to their use of any data they had access to and they make copies of, but they uh, keep using. If they keep using that data, um, and they don't have like a certificate of, of my giving them access to that data because what they will have is a contract that says you can have use this data from this day to this day. But then the, the next uh, you know, in, outside that, they cannot use my date of birth, for example. Oh, I'm using your date of birth. Where, what are you using it for? And, and who gave you access to that? If they don't have a contract that says you can use the date of birth of earnest from this period to that period, and, it, and including that, then their copy is invalid and, and um, yeah, it's invalid. They cannot use it. They have to prove that they can use that data. And, and you know, just like we have the SEC and financial records of, you know, every stock trade or whatever, we have systems just, you know, making sure that trades and things happen instantaneously and, and all that. We can provide the same kind of infrastructure for personal and business data. It's individual. It's going to be a business 
uh, inventory data and all that stuff. We should provide that. You know, people say data will eat the world. Well, let's do that. You know, let's make a, a infrastructure that really, really manages data as if it were stocks and, and bonds and all that stuff. So uh, that's um, what I think. Yeah, the data itself is cheap, but you have to provide that. You have to show that whatever data you have about me, I give you access to that data. Otherwise, no, you you don't. Your copy doesn't count. Let's put it that way. Well, it doesn't count, but that doesn't mean you didn't use it. So I guess there's a couple. That's what, kind of what I was alluding to for. Once your data is out there, uh, it's very, very, very difficult to prove or require that. And by out there, it means it's in clear text. It's to somebody on the network, mm -hmm. any any counterparty. It's very, very, very difficult to audit every access precisely because copies are so cheap. And I, I think right. it, it's hard to argue that the data will never be used in aggregate. There's just a million ways around that. And if we just right. watch so the I, dance I, between... I, I, you know what's hilarious to me? This is precisely the problem that you and I are dealing with in my company about moving people away from zombie data in clear text papers to URL. Right. The thing is that, the, and I think the answer is precisely the same one. It's like, yes, yeah, in principle, anyone can copy any data anywhere. Can we build a system where being uh, uh, on the platform, being a good citizen, having a reputation for managing the data well, is far more valuable than any short-term gain you get by cheating and making expensive copies of your own data? There's certainly a human yeah. problem in here. Companies are a little bit easier in that in practice and in theory as well. It's a group of trusted individuals and you have a shared purpose and there's alignment. And, you know, if, if you I think the whole point of a company is that you don't have to worry about adversarial cases. And you can assume that, okay, you know, how, many being attacked. Have you worked, how many companies have you worked at in East? <laughs> I mean enough, enough, I've, and and many of the big ones as well. Uh, so, but but I, I still think that's true. Like that is a well, so it's true in to a certain extent in certain contexts, right? Is like the conceit, and in fact, that's precisely why so many companies have data silos, right? Is because either they explicitly distrust other people, or they don't feel that the people managing the data have interests that are aligned with theirs because they need to keep their shadow IT going, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And so what, I agree. But, but then the tension, you, you decide, you're somewhere on that continuum between uh, mistrust and, and radical cost. And, and this is really what I want to get to. So I, I, I'm, I would like to provoke with the idea that this whole idea of everyone having their own private data and being in control of their own data is as practical as running your own airline so that you can travel Wait, in, in pure state. I think, I think that's the wrong straw man to use, Anish. I think well, let me, let me, let me finish the, the okay. argument. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so, so, so uh, uh, the, the first thing is that, okay, there's kind of an implicit assumption in a didocracy that copies are relatively cheap and everybody can have copies. And we all, we already start to see like, wow, you know, once you go or join a centralized platform, a Facebook, a Google, you are, you know, just signed up for immense amounts of sharing and it's very, very hard to extricate yourself from that network. 
And, and I feel like what we're neglecting is this idea that in order to really have control over your data and, you know, to, to, to push the Coinbase analogy really far, I think most people would argue that coin, if, you, if your coins are on Coinbase, you don't own them. And cryptographically, you don't, right? They're not your keys, not your coins, I think is a, is a short way of saying that. I think what we're underestimating is how much compute and network infrastructure is going to be required. And, and there's some really interesting startups. There's a company called Start9 Labs right now. And they essentially let you run your own service. And it's like, you know, unanonymous. They, they use Tor and Bitcoin and you can have a Lightning Pay server and you can have a Sphinx chat and all this kind of like super private stuff. But on the flip side of that is, you know, you have to run your own node and you have to run your own infrastructure. And I think the short of everything I'm trying to say is that we're, it may not be warranted this assumption that data is always free and everyone can, I think everyone can have uh, autonomy and full control over their data. I think that implies a whole set of costs that we really haven't accounted for. All right. Can I get back to the straw man I wanted you to attack? Sure. <laughs> Right, so yeah, I don't see. Well, I mean, who, who's got the straw man here? <laughs> okay. Right, so let, let, here's a, here's a story that was like. So the division I think that Ernest was pitching is not that there are no vendors. It's not that everyone manages everything themselves, but it's precisely that um, the core architectural pieces of the platform are not controlled by any one vendor. And mm -hmm. to me, that's really the interesting thing about this. Is like, you know, I don't mind. Uh, the problem with, I have with Google is not that they own the data, it's that, or is that they run the platform. It's that they run the platform and they're monetizing it and they're making all the decisions. It's all one big bundle up and flock. I mean, just think about the world of the internet we live in, right? How mind-bogglingly awesome is it that I can pull, you know, you know, bring up my own server? And you know, the early days, we all did bring up our own servers, right? And then we moved to ISPs and then, you know, people mostly use Google and Facebook. But the point is, is that, if I bring up my own server, it's, you know, and I decide to publish something, then modulo from latency and denial of service issues, it's just as legitimate as any other website anywhere on the planet. And that is a level of neutral platform that is that was really inconceivable, you know, 40 years ago. And what I'm thinking, Ernest is saying is that, well, okay, right now, cryptocurrency is hard ugly. But one can imagine a world. Oh, Ernie, you went you went silent. Are you there? Yes. Yeah, you're back. Okay. Yeah. If you can step away okay. from Quinn, so we'll, we'll do you better. Yeah. <laughs> the my dog wants me to come out and watch him bark at squirrels. He's very insistent about this for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, the uh, the vision is that. The core architectural pillars are communally owned by, for mm -hmm. example, the, the, the Ethereum owners in the blockchain. And yes, of course there are. I'm not saying it's a perfect analogy, but it's a better metaphor than what we have today. And that's the straw man I want to work with. Because one can imagine a series of architectural, like, let's use Ethereum. I don't think this is perfect for a bunch of reasons, but it's a, it's a good, it's a better straw man. Right. Something like Ethereum, where you have one protocol, you have a communally shared decision-making process, you have multiple independently developed clients, so it's not a single code reference implementation that everyone has to use, and if you have a rich ecosystem of service providers on top of that, and different interfaces on top of it, and the idea is that, uh, the important thing is that Ethereum does not own Coinbase. 
right, is the service providers, the network infrastructure layer, and these other application layers, there's a certain level of uh, non-concentration of power that is understood. Well, and okay, so this a natural, and there's certain things that are communally owned in a way that they, like, it is impossible for Coinbase to buy Ethereum. For well, the that's the Apple and Oranges, but get, I know what you mean. The more, yeah, and the, the whole, let me stop. Before, I'm get with my dog. Is that the more distribute, the more we can distribute power on a common shared ecosystem, the closer we get to this idea of communal data platform. Nothing will ever be perfect, but having Coinbase and Ethereum is better than just having Wells Fargo. That's kind of my point. So, sure, and, and I'll, I'll steal, man, some of that, which is, first of all, Coinbase versus Ethereum is the wrong comparison. Those are two two very different kind of entities. One is an exchange or a marketplace, and the other one is an actual cryptocurrency product, but I understand what you mean by that. And I think this is a question of what, how much decentralization is required for security. And, you know, there is a big debate about this in Bitcoin versus Ethereum, and some people will tell you, well, if it, Ethereum isn't actually that decentralized, and there are different measures of decentralization that you can look at, and they'll say they have a huge vulnerability. Basically, if AWS ever pulled the rug out of Ethereum, that, that would that would kind of be the, the crumbling of the Ethereum infrastructure. But I, I want to get to, I think, an important characteristic that we've talked about before, and where you, I think where you were really skating with this, Ernie, in terms of the, the straw man that you wanted me to attack, I think it's a genuine argument, by the way, was that platforms, we want to avoid a situation where people are locked into platforms and there's monopoly. I think in not so many words, right? And oligopolies or alternatives are a good thing. And, and I think that that comes down to a quality we've talked about in past podcasts, which is fungibility. So when, when data, and we have to be very careful with this word because we don't intend data to be fungible in the same way that gold, you know, one ounce of gold is fungible with another ounce of gold or a barrel of oil is fungible with another barrel of oil. But in the sense that when, like I, they're just bytes at the end of the day. And I don't care if those bytes run in, if they're stored in blob storage on Google Cloud or if they're stored in Amazon S3. I, re, I really shouldn't care. And it doesn't matter for my purposes, right? And so you can see in the cloud vendor market, actually, this competition is very useful. And there are certain forces, they're called cloud native forces, Kubernetes comes to mind, which are designed to make it very inexpensive from an infrastructure standpoint to move from one cloud to another, right? If I have a Helm chart for a given, for a Kubernetes cluster, I, I can run into any of the three major cloud platform providers. And that gives me a lot of power. But guess what? Guess what the gravity is? It is the data. And it turns out, it turns out that once I have some number, some number of terabytes, maybe low exabytes of data in Amazon, I cannot afford to move it out. Uh, again, so is this a problem? What do you think of Delta no, sharing, I, by the way? I, I'm not familiar, like Delta Lake sharing? Oh, okay, because like Delta, Delta sharing, I thought this was the most profound thing I've seen uh, in the line of the semantic web, which is that the Databricks people have this thing called Delta Lake, which is their acid layer, uh, database layer on top of our K tables. And they recently announced this big cross-industry consortium called Delta sharing, which is to say, you know, hey, it's precisely this thing we talked about. I'm going to give you access to this subset of my data uh, under exactly these terms uh, at this endpoint in a secure, yeah. trusted, revocable way. And the idea being that, well, in fact, actually, that's a good thing. Everyone's got this big, massive lakes of data in their own thing. Uh, but then I can say, you know, and but it's, a, it's open standard. It's an open interface. It's an open protocol. 
And so if I want to be crazy and tinfoil hat and build my own, I can. If I want to use the DuckDuckGo, uh, you know, third-party version because I don't trust the big boys, I can do that, whatever. The point is then the protocol we agree on is, hey, we just use the Delta share and we all know who you are when you do this. You have a certificate. And if you're a bad actor, we find out. And that's yeah. like, you know, the right way to solve this problem. I guess the Delta share itself is exactly the right thing. I don't know. But something like that seems like how you solve this problem. Yeah, uh, well, like sorry, there's multiple the... this problem. So one is one is the data gravity problem. Here's what I'm trying to say is that the data gravity is going to be both a blessing and a curse, and we have to see both sides of it. So one of the curses is that data gravity implies lock-in. But so in other words, you don't get me off of Amazon just because I, I can do a Delta share, by the way. That that Delta share is a no, necessary no, thing in the market. Right, no, and, and but, but the point is I'm not saying it gets you off of Amazon. I'm saying it gets me decoupling, right? Is that if I have a no, there's I'm still a, tied to my well, provider. No, sorry, no, not, I'm tied to my and provider where a, I did live there. But, but I can use service providers who operate elsewhere as long as so I, if I want to have you know someone do an audit of my system, I can hire somebody, and then as long as Amazon honors the Delta sharing protocol, they can run their analyses on my behalf, even if they're not natively on Amazon. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. Right, but right. you, you must, so Amazon will get their pound of flesh because the data transfers are only free in data center or in region, and, you know, they're going to charge their pound the, of flesh. Right, with, with the data. You're, right. you're right. So there is yeah. some cost uh, in and out, sure. Um, um, uh, I mean, yeah. you're thinking in the... Uh, I, I'm less concerned about money in the, in the long term, right, because in the, in the long term, anything that is fungible and competitive, the cost gets driven down. Um, right, that's the idea of that. And don't forget, there's also, um, I'm really glad we have three cloud platforms today, right? So, like, not everyone is in one, and there's some adversarial tension and comp competition, which, if it was just Amazon, I'd be a lot more terrified. Just like I'm really scared about Databricks, is that there's a chance they'll yeah. run the table. And one of the reasons I wrote this manifesto is to say, okay, which parts am I willing to trust them with, and which parts do I need to make sure that I'm owning and keeping open source so that I don't. Uh, end up, um, I mean, nothing's ever perfect, but I can at least avoid obviously bad uh, trade-offs, which is what a lot of the choices we've had today are. And the goal is if we can we keep making better trade-offs and even just if Amazon gets nasty, at least if we can document the fact they're being nasty so that next generation of people know not to build on top of Amazon, that's still a win. Yeah. And, yes. And, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking in a non-Amazon, non-Google uh, world. Like, that we're starting from the bottom up. Like, okay, I mean, you and I know each other, and we trust each other, and uh, let's say you and I are engineers, and we create a system by which we can communicate, only you and me. Um, then, you know, you can do all kinds of things. We have to do a lot of work to accomplish that, but in essence, you and I can do stuff because I trust you, you trust me. We can add Ernie then. Oh, Ernie, yeah, we can, you know, let's do a little, uh, a little tree of, of whatever. And we operate that way. We keep, we keep adding people to our little group of, of you know, uh, linked individuals and hardware that we, and software that we all write. We, we are super programmers and we write all our, our own stuff. And we create our world where Okay, uh, uh, I have uh, other friends of Anish, or Anish has friends, and 
uh, I trust them because I trust Anish, and the system knows that. And I say, uh, uh, hey, uh, Anish provides me access to his friends because he trusts me enough that he does that. And, you know, he, I'm a friend of Anish. And then there are uh, friends of friends of Anish. I say, hey, Anish, do you know somebody? That... So that's how we inter interact because we have trust, we have our own data, we control our own data, and we have systems that we have built that do that. And, and that's what I'm talking about. When it comes to Amazon, say, uh, well, Amazon will have to have, uh, because Amazon will be just a big provider of hardware and compute and all that stuff, and we need that. Well, uh, if Amazon is willing to uh, become a member of our group, then they have to go by certain rules which include the use of data, especially personal data. They cannot just get it out of, out of a cloud. Oh, I saw some uh, documents and, oh, I see that it's earnest. Oh, I have that data. No, you cannot use it for official transactions of our little network. You cannot. You have to prove that I gave you access to that. Otherwise, you, that data is not valid for whatever transaction you're trying to do. This is a world separate from what we have now. What we have now is totally crazy and it's totally uh, I certainly uh, uh, way on the side of the corporations that have all the hardware, Amazon, Google, Apple, all those. It's, it's, it's just not an individually uh, oriented world. It is not. So we have to fork. We have to start over almost. We have to forget all that because that is totally unfair and it's way, you know, it's, it's the means of production are in the hands of the people with a lot of money that can afford a lot of the systems that make data cheap, right? That's that's the problem. So we have to solve that problem in the uh, making the individual the center of this. You know, that's the, the whole point. The individual has to be has to feel that uh, he is empowered. Right now, no, there's nothing like that. You know, we have uh, once T-Mobile have a has a, a big data breach, millions of people information was uh, uh, lost. And what does T-Mobile do? Oh, I give you some uh, data. Uh, what is it? Credit card protection, and I give you. So they don't suffer anything. They say we have our data. Your uh, the data that we have on you is precious to us, and we will protect it. Well, they didn't. And what do they do? What do they suffer? Absolutely nothing. The individual, all these millions of people suffer because now their information is out there, people can do uh, identity theft on them, and the individuals are are suffering the brunt of that. What What is T-Mobile suffering? T-Mobile is not suffering anything. You know, just like uh, uh, when it comes to uh, Enron, well, Enron, yeah, they did suffer some of the individuals, some of the uh, executives, or early 2008, 2011, the uh, 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 big housing problem. Who went to jail? No one. Right, some people got got super rich. Like this, this, this one guy got rich. He saw that, and, you know, he predicted that he he um, made some trades and he made a whole lot of money. Who suffered? Good the course, people yeah. who had the yeah. phones, the people who had the houses. So we're like, uh, to me, that is not fair, and we have to solve that problem. And the only reason, the only way to do that is to go from the bottom up. We are not going to go to Amazon. Hey, Amazon, we have this new world where you are irrelevant. No, they're going to, I used to know. So we have to go to the uh, the users, you know, the individuals. Hey, you know, Ernie, hey, Anish, hey, Maria, hey, let's get together. Let's form our own little network 
and our own little uh, community organization that manages information in the way that we want. And then that either will grow to uh, to more people, and then once you have a lot of people not using Amazon, not using Facebook because they have something better in, in their own, they, then, you know, there's, you, you see the sort of entity that say, hey, what's going on? We're losing all kinds of customers. Well, that's because the, or you don't even see them because they're on some other system. And the only way for you to see them is to go to that system and to adapt to its rules. Otherwise, you will just live in the in your world that is that could be becoming um, more and more uh, obsolete. So that's the kind of change that I'm talking about, that I'm thinking about. It's not to adapt the current world. It's, it's unadaptable. It's just it cannot be adapted. It has, we have to create another one where the individual, uh, the business owners, own their own information and, and control it and effectively control it. It's not just word of you know uh, whatever Mark says in some microphone, but then you find out that the, the their internal emails say the exact opposite. You know, like yeah, you wouldn't want to live in that world. We want to live in a world that's ruled by values too. So yeah, we have values, and and we go by that, those values. Well, if you do, if you haven't codified, then you will be uh, measured against those values. You know, the level of trust that people have on you will be uh, uh, based on whether you do adhere uh, to those values. Facebook doesn't. So if Facebook could not be a friend of mine because Facebook is a liar. Facebook is a, a thief. And, well, but and Facebook actually, isn't even a person, by the way. That, that, well, well I know, but we have to, Facebook is an entity. So as long as you have, you're an entity, you know, you have people behind it, but yeah, you're you're working as an Facebook is an entity, and and, and I think they, you know, they uh, so in the United States, a company is a person, and a company can vote with money, right? So that's the current law of this country. Like a company is a person in certain a lot of things, a lot of ways. So, uh, but even if it weren't a person, the company still is still an entity that acts in certain ways. So. Uh, People are behind those actions, but still, uh, people outside of Facebook see Facebook as an entity, Apple as an entity, even though it's a bunch of uh, individuals. So as long as that's the case, yes, you have to behave as an entity. You can be sued. You can, you can be, you know, just because you're a company, it's not a different, you're, uh, you're not going to be, um, you can just do whatever you want. A company has also... You know, laws of incorporation and things that you have to do. You know, your shareholders, you have to, your, you have to make sure that they get uh, uh, their value increases and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, whatever you are, an individual, a small business, a big corporation, you, if you're part of this network of entities, you have to behave in a certain way. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out. Like, I, I, I think the, the, the red is perfectly justified. Well, this is really the, where I sort of differ from Ernest. I'm more pragmatic and also more optimistic. Like the reality is, compared to the way the world was pre-internet, the fact is we have so many tools we can use that Facebook and the Googles have no control over. Email, for the most part, um, you know, uh, websites, these podcasts, for example, Telegram, Tor, Thinks. Yeah, right. And so the point is, is that there's actually a lot of pieces that we can use and build upon. Even like if we're using our iPhone, we can still do things, uh, talk about ways to versus the way that, you know, uh, was literally uh, impossible. So I think there's, uh, I'm, 
I agree. With, uh, Ernest is the artist. He has a vision of what the world should be like, even if it takes 20 years or 100 years. I'm more impatient. It's like, okay, well, how can we start building towards that, you know, in the short term using what we have now? And even if we don't get it right, at least we'll be uh, showing people concretely better ways to do these things. And I think yes. there is. Um, there's a starting you know, there's point problem. Built. Yeah, yeah, the starting point, there's a starting point problem, uh, the MVP, if you will. Right. But in some sense, That's right. you know, what I'm doing with you with my company is a starting point for this. I'm saying it's like, okay, in a really small scale, my company wants to adopt a new data platform in the next six months. Uh, you know, we're using Databricks. And it's like, okay, how do I use Databricks and how do I build on top of it in a way that reflects these values in this manifesto today? Of course, it's all running on AWS and there's a bunch of vendors on it, but there's also a ton of it that is open source in a way that was not the case. Uh, you know, uh, a year ago, right? If you had to use Snowflake, everything was built into Snowflake and that was it. But now, because of the competitive pressures, you know, the bottom layers of Databricks are all open source. And that in principle, if I decide that Databricks is a horrible compute layer, you know, at least I can just keep my data on AWS move on. Now, if AWS is, is you know, not viable, okay, that's a different set of problems. I'm not going to worry about that now. I can't solve everything at once. Um, uh, but, you know, at the very least, I can publish my blog saying, by when you do your next startup, don't start with AWS, right? That's the way that you solve those problems if there's better options. Um, but I think that there's things that we can do that will, um, like, and like, for example, when I'm building my data architecture, I say, okay, based on this manifest, I say, okay, what are the core architectural things that I want to make sure that I own? And I can't guard against all bad cases. But I always say guard against the case where data pricks either become evil or get stagnant or just wants to go in a different direction than I do. What are the choices I can make now to make sure that five years from now, none of my architectural pieces are locked into Databricks? Just like, you know, we're having this beautiful migration from Qbolt to Databricks because it's all S3 and Parquet. And as long as those are there as open standards, uh, we are, or as open enough standards, then I have flexibility at the top layers. And so in the, Great future, I would imagine, you know, they're being alternatives to Amazon and Google and Microsoft. But until then, if I can just make them as dumb as possible and stick them in their layer so they don't control what I'm doing at the higher layers, I feel like I'm in a much better place. It's trying to like uh, manage that. And so anyway, that's my rant. Uh, we're probably getting close to closing arguments. Well, that, that certainly seems more practical and so so i guess the the touching back on where where ernest was taking us it sounds good but utopian in that i think there are at least half a dozen hard problems like trust transitivity of trust scalability of infrastructure smart contracts i mean it's just full of open problems and so mm -hmm. i guess ernie starting starting with the corporation uh, is in one sense a very concrete and practical example but in another sense, it is also potentially an oversimplification of what would be needed for a autocracy because you have de facto some alignment. And I guess, you know, you, you laughed at the company as a group in which you don't have to worry about the adversarial case. But at the end of the day, there is a company there whom everybody works for. And ultimately, there is a manager that everybody reports into. And you can kind of, you can kind of herd those cats. Now, for an open datocracy, and again, maybe maybe we decide that we want to solve a closed problem that uh, that those none of those are given. 
And, and what I didn't hear was, what is the incentive for people to participate? Why would people leave their existing massive network effects to proceed in this hack your own, write your own code, maybe I trust you, like never heard of it network? Oh, you well, know, it's, funny, it's, the funny thing the issue, sorry, is that like, is that I'm not saying this is the answer. I'm saying that if I do this thing, we'll learn a bunch of stuff about how this works elsewhere, what's easy, what's hard, what's possible, not. But to me, that's the same problem that I keep asking. How do I get people to start using, doing their analyses on the data platform rather than just dumping everything to Excel? I had at least two fire drills this week where it's like, hey, I have this thing in Excel or actually Google Sheets, slightly better, and I have no idea where it came from. And like, I'm running around like crazy because my boss is on vacation. And it's like, if I could just solve that problem, and if I could do that in a way that's using open source, open standard tools, it's like, okay, that's a microcosm of the problem that we always face. How do you get people to do stuff on platform rather than with their yep. own proprietary tools? And I think that's a huge hard problem, but every small step we make to make that easier and better, it may not be part of the final solution, but it teaches us of the things we'll need to do in order to get there. And then you can imagine. I'll give you a short answer. Yeah. I'll give you a short answer to that, and then I'll let Ernest wrap it up. So, so Asana made a really brilliant observation maybe five or ten years ago when they were first scaling up, and they said they, they their problem was exactly this kind of denormalization or fragmentation. And it's like, you know, hey, how do you how do you create a to do list that actually gets used and actually contains the state of the world when the actual to do list is a post it stuck on your monitor? Okay. So, so the first observation they made, which I think is a really tremendous observation, they said was, in order for the shared system of truth to actually contain truth and actually be up to date, it has to be the same system that people use, wait for it, to keep themselves organized, right? And yeah. so that is, as soon as I heard your problem, so, so there's the, the kind of, this is the interesting separation between data and compute. So as soon as I heard your problem, which you phrased as like, hey, I've got this Google sheet and I don't know where it came from. How do I get more people to participate in the platform? So they're recording the lineage, the provenance of their data and doing it seamlessly. I think the first thing is you, you don't try and stop people from working in Excel or working in, I mean, those things, are, Excel is the third data science language, right? Python, R, and Excel, it's just never gonna go away. It's gonna be, it's gonna be with us forever. People are gonna be using Microsoft Excel forever. And, and I think the Until answer the revolution is, comes. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, right. Sure. I think the answer is that you and, and this is also the answer to how you create a substrate, which is relatively vendor neutral and platform neutral, is that you allow people to create. Listen, at the end of the day, at least on the business user side of things, actually, I think even all the way across the board, developers and data engineers as well, there's this file abstraction. And what we need and what we have tried to invent and are working on very actively at Quilt is can I checkpoint a set of files and just check it in and be like, okay, it's here. The files are in this state. I am this person. This is the documentation. This is what I know about it. And it's part of the universe now in a fungible way. Oh, I have to say, say this because this occurred to me today that would solve 80% of my problems. Could I use Quilt? So right now, sorry, this is a little bit off topic, Ernest, but it's, it's, it's sort of relevant and amusing at least is that so right now my state of the art for sending people data is a csv file and a url sent in an email and then people grab the csv file and god knows what happens to it i said huh right. what if instead of doing a csv file i could send an excel file or have it help me an excel sheet where the first tab is the raw data that they always expect and is just there and then the second tab is all the metadata 
that we use to generate that, which is the sort of thing that Quilt manages, the documentation, the README. It's like, oh, what if I just gave them a Google Sheet with the data and the second tab was all the metadata? That would actually mean that if they download it to Excel, they have it in the Excel sheet, all the provenance of where it came from. Would that be that hard to do? No. It's very doable. I, I wouldn't, this is a quibble for another call, but I wouldn't put the metadata in the Excel file, but that is exactly what these units of data that we call packages do. It's the data, right. the, the metadata, is, and the lineage. Yeah. The idea is that like, how do I make it so that when they pull it into Excel, they don't lose all that metadata? That's the, that was the thing I was trying to figure out. Anyway, we can discuss that later. Anyway, this, this yep. is the interesting That's very doable, thing. Though. And this is what it's I love about the dialogue that is that like, yeah, is, 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 you know, I think I want artists here to keep us honest about the vision of where we're moving towards, but I want to make small little experiments here with things that we can actually use today to see if it'll teach us, you know, what can work, what can't work, and if nothing else serves as a cautionary tale for what to do better in the future. Just a few sentences. It's too interesting not to answer. So the answer to your question is arguably the most important innovation, the most important thing that we've ever come up with at Quill, and it's the idea of a manifest. And it is that when I deliver a data set to you, it comes with the manifest. What is the manifest? The manifest is the list of all of the contents. It's, it's like a bill of lading in some sense. It's a list of all the contents, where they came from, and what we know about them, or at least pointers to those things. So that is the idea. And that you have to trick your users, and it's not difficult, because at the end of the day, it's just a button they click on the web, into not just downloading the Excel file, but downloading that manifest. And from there, many good things can happen. Oh, are you finished with that, Anish? Yep. We're, we're finished so, with our digression, yeah. Ernest. We'll let you wrap things up. <laughs> so so what, what you two are talking about is, is comes close to context. And we were, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about context, how important it is. So that's not exactly context, but it's more, you know, it gets closer to that. What is the context of this data, right? You know, it's not just numbers. It's, it may mean something. They're connecting to some connected to something. And with that information, that metadata, you can do all kinds of things. Once you have that, then you know, you're you free. It actually frees you to do more um, innovative things with that data. It's, it's not naked data. It has, uh, you know, history, it has context. So you can, with that information, you can do all kinds of things. And that's great. And, and we should move towards that. Um, and also to close up on values, you know, I, I hear a lot of politicians and CEOs and things, uh, entities talking about, oh, because our values, we do this or that. But then you look for what are your values? They're not codified. They're not. So they can do whatever, they can say whatever they want because our values. But if, if you don't codify your values, then that's, that's just bullshit what you're talking about because, you know, you're not accountable to it. So uh, in that by, uh, circumstance, I saw, um, uh, the Salesforce CEO, you know, I forget the name, but yeah, Daniel. Salesforce CEO, yeah. So he, uh, a lot of the things that that company does is because of our values, our values, and that, you know, including like exiting out of Georgia because of whatever Georgia did with uh, LGBTQ and all that stuff. And I'm like, okay, let me, uh, okay, so he starts talking about values. What are the company's values? And And that company actually has a list of values, and I was able to. Oh yeah, they 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 do have like five. One of them is is trust. Another one is is, is well, you know, you, you can look it up. But you can uh, with those with that list, I can see that yeah, you can judge Salesforce by that list of values. They what they 
who adheres to that. Not, you know, not entirely. I don't have the entire history, but it does. So if we can get, if we can computerize those things, okay, so these are values. This is one entity that says they adhere to them. And if we can uh, computerize you know, behavior and uh, interactions, and then something can measure whether what this company is doing, what this entity is doing, adheres to those things, and you can measure and you can compute it and measure it. Yeah, okay, check it adheres to these values. Or if it doesn't, then uh, you can't do it. So we have in cryptocurrency this thing of flash loans that you can write a contract and, and say borrow millions of dollars. And you can do all kinds of things. And then if you make money, okay, the contract happens. If you don't make money, the contract doesn't happen. So nobody lost anything. So it's something similar. Hey, we, we want to do this, this project. Let's, let's, let's see if it you know, goes with our values or whatever. And if it goes with the values, yes, you do it. If it doesn't, then you don't do it. Something similar to that is what we, once we computerize data, once, you know, you, that's just not name. That just, that is not just a name, it's Ernest's name. And Ernest was born in Costa Rica, and Ernest went to the army. Once we connect data like that, then we, you know, data cannot be, we cannot say that data is cheap anymore. We have to say data is rich, actually rich, where uh, you see something and it points you to the entire history of whatever you're talking about. That's the kind of world that I see. Uh, the kind of world that we see in movies all the time, you know. Uh, uh, identity uh, was yeah identity report you know, all those things they show kinds of graphics and things and things that uh, yeah that would be cool but we are not moving towards that so we have you know I, yeah I'm idealistic and I'm actually super idealistic because I'm thinking of, of uh, when people leave this earth you know what are their computing systems going to be what is their data going to be so that's what I'm talking about like people can. Is, uh, split off of the Earth, but then they can take a little bit of what you have on Earth into their spaceship or whatever, so that they can then uh, behave in, in in a certain way. That's one way to leave this Earth. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, as we you know, we're going to Mars in a little bit. Uh, oh, I, I thought you meant death. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. When we uh, get out of our little. Um, uh, uh, cocoon or whatever. Where, yeah, where we were right. born. You know, we, we, yeah. right. My daughter's yelling at me to get off my screens and go play outside. So, I, well, my dog isn't yelling at me to do that, and my daughter wants me to. So, I will drop off. Feel free to chat, but thank you. I think this tension of this concept of richness, I think, is an interesting one. Maybe we'll use it as a starting point for next time. And, Denise, I want to do a actual work call with you sometime this week to talk about how we get that embedded metadata in place. Let's do that. And, and a parting thought here, I think the hard problem or the one that smells the most difficult to me in the utopian vision is how you turn the semantics of company values into syntax that machines can check. I have no idea how to do that. Let's talk about it next call. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.